We're going to continue our journey uh, through the season of Lent week two, like we just talked about earlier. And uh, last week we jumped in the deep end of Mark. We're going to be there again today. If you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter one, we're going to be flipping through. And my favorite part of that story is when God rips open the sky and the spirit descends on Jesus. And we are reminded that God is breaking in through this man, Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that there's this intense journey ahead of him, submits to the Spirit's like abrupt tossing of him into the wilderness where he is aligned with the Father. And he learns the lessons of the wilderness of his Father's unrelenting provision and protection, of the Father's desire to mold and shape and prepare him for the vocation that lay ahead. Now, if you kind of skip, like turn your pages through Mark, you're going to see the story in Mark just like takes off at like a breakneck speed. In the original language, the author uses the word immediately 41 times. He goes, and immediately Jesus preached. And then immediately he healed this guy. And then immediately he raised a girl from the dead. Like constantly, like Jesus is running at a breakneck pace. It's a mad rush. Jesus' teaching and preaching of the inbreaking kingdom of God, but also demonstrating uh, that inbreaking kingdom through signs and wonders like healings and feedings and miraculous uh, calming of the storm, demonstrating his lordship over creation. But the strange thing through this whole thing is that Jesus does these amazing things over and over again, but one theme keeps emerging, and it's the theme of secrecy. So Jesus will heal somebody and be like, hey, I know you were blind and everybody knows about it and now you can see, but could you keep that to yourself? And they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll get on that, right? Or the family whose little girl died and Jesus goes in and he raises her to life and he brings the parents and he goes, I just raised your kid from the dead. Could you go ahead and keep that under wraps? And they're like, yeah, sure, I'll be on that, right, you know? And it's this strange theme of, Jesus, why, if you're the Messiah, do you not want everyone to know? So we're going to come back to that later on. But today we're going to find ourselves in chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there if you want to. Between last week's text and this week's text, Jesus has done almost all of his healings now, okay? Healings and cleansings and dead raising and storm stilling, crazy stuff. But a shift is coming as Jesus takes his disciples on this ultimate journey, the journey to Jerusalem and the cross, and teaches them on the way. Now that phrase is going to be of importance to us as we are going to journey with them as well on the way with Jesus. You see, the disciples have been with Jesus now for almost three years, and they've seen him do all these amazing things and heard him preach with authority like no one ever has. And yet, and yet, they still don't quite get it. They don't understand what Jesus is about. And having just witnessed in chapter 8, having just witnessed yet another miracle, 4,000 people fed this time miraculously, they still don't understand that Jesus' message goes beyond bread, it goes beyond healings, and it even goes uh, goes beyond bringing down the powers that be. Jesus is up to something different, and they don't get it. And so I imagine, with somewhat of an exasperated sigh, Jesus says to his disciples, Guys, do you still not perceive... Or do you understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And so then they get on the boat and they cross over to Bethesda where uh, on, the, on the way to Jerusalem ultimately. But right as they're about to begin this, what I like to describe as like this really intensive discipleship hike, okay? It's a lot of miles that they're going to walk to Jerusalem. There's a, a, a blind man that approaches them. 
he comes up to them and his friends bring him and say, please, please, I know you're on, the, you're on the way and you're avoiding crowds, but our friend, he's blind. Can you help him? And this is what it says, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, do not even go into the village. I have questions. Don't you? Jesus, the guy that raised a dead little girl back to life, needs a do-over? He needs like two tries to get it right? with the blind thing, like a mulligan. And I imagine the blind guy is thinking like, oh, what a stroke of luck. This Jesus, he's passed through my area and I know he's avoiding the crowds, but he chose me, he saw me. And so I imagine him saying, okay, okay, Jesus, whatever you say. And Jesus says, okay, let's go outside of the village. Oh, out of town. Okay, that's awesome. Just lead the way, lead the way. All right, awesome. Uh, What's next? Are you going to like lay your hands on me, a prayer? Spit, you say, spit. That's that. Okay, whoa, you just put spit on my eyes. Wow, that's really gross. And now, uh, is this vision? This is not what I was anticipating. (laughs) It's blurry, and it is ill-defined, and I don't think this is very helpful. To only half see, to have all the information in front of you, to have the basic content, but to be unable to make sense of it. What a frustrating place to be. And luckily... Jesus doesn't leave the guy in his blurry bubble, but touches him again, and he frees him from his blindness once and for all, and as was his practice, tells him to keep it to himself. Now with that, the bulk of Jesus' healing ministry is done, and he's ready to go on this long walk to Jerusalem and to the cross. And so as the shadow of the cross descends on Jesus' heart and mind, he feels this urgency, this need to take and teach his disciples the ultimate lesson. And so he begins with a vision test for them, starting in verse 27. He said, Jesus went on, this is after the healing, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered, well, it's John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them again, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. It was a bold move on Peter's part, right? Naming what everybody was thinking, what they were all hoping. They're like, the Messiah. Yes. These last three years of my life have not been a waste. Following this guy around, doing all kinds of shenanigans. It hasn't been a waste. We found him. It's the Messiah. They passed the vision test with flying colors. Hooray. Because they have rightly named Jesus for who he is. The anointed rescuer sent from God, right? But then, continuing on, even as they're celebrating, Woo, the Messiah, awesome! Jesus continues to talk. He says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Wait, no, that is not how it goes. 
The Messiah is God's great warrior. He is the one who will restore Israel forever to her former glory. He's the one who is supposed to break the power of the oppressive Romans, and he's going to set things right for God's people once and for all, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that's what the Messiah is supposed to do, not die. But no, their vision is blurry. They got it right. Yeah, Jesus the Messiah, but not like they thought. Their vision is totally blurred by their expectations. And perhaps that's the reason why Jesus doesn't want them going around telling everybody he's the Messiah because it means something different than they know. Kind of a lame example, but you'll get the point. When I was traveling internationally with a group of friends from my church when I was a kid, uh, we were in Spain and there was an older guy in our group and I was the only one who spoke Spanish. And let's be clear, it was basic Spanish, okay? Like, quiero hamburguesa, okay? And the guy next to me, I was all excited. I'm like, oh, give me the Spanish food. Give me the tortas and all the, you know, Spanishy things. And he's like, guys, we've been traveling like a long time. I just want a hamburger. Can I just have a hamburger? And so I ordered a hamburger for the guy. I'm like, this guy, hamburguesa, right? And they bring him the plate. There's no bun. It is a circle patty of meat with like a runny egg all over the top of it. And the guy's face, he was so, he was crestfallen. He was like, I just wanted a hamburger. And so the thing is, that ain't a hamburger, right? If it's going to be a hamburger, it's going to have a bun, and it's going to have some cheese, and preferably some bacon, right? And some ketchup on the side. And if it is not that, do not call it a hamburger, right? Because it gets all your hopes up, all these expectations of what a hamburger is. So if it's not like my expectations, don't even use that word. And so Jesus says to his disciples, guys, I know, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but stop. You don't know what that means. You're using it wrong. It's the wrong thing. Because your expectations have blurred your vision. Ah, expectations. The destroyer of hopes and dreams, am I right? (laughs) Nothing can ruin your day, or perhaps your life, more than expectations denied. I was listening to an NPR story the other day, and social scientists had been noting that in recent years, flights were arriving to their destination uh, earlier. Have you noticed that? If you fly a lot, like you get there like, hey, this is your captain speaking. I just want to let you know we're going to get to Denver 20 minutes early. You're welcome. Right? And you're like, oh, sweet. Uh, But social scientists were like, wait a second. The distance hasn't changed. Is it a new plane? Uh, Like a new route? How is this working out? Well, it's actually none of the above. In fact, the uh, airlines realized that they just needed to adjust the expectations of their passengers. You see, they found that when people, um, they learned from, I'm guessing, years of wrangling psychotic, angry passengers, that um, overestimating how long a time would uh, flight would take and leaving a little bit of wiggle room, there's much more positive fruit in their passengers' perception of their experience than when they underestimate the flight. You see what I'm saying? So they say, oh, it's going to take two hours, and it really took two and a half. Then you're like angry and irritable and ugh. But if they tell you it's going to take about three hours, and you get there 20 minutes early, you're like, sweet, I am always flying southwest, right? And nothing has actually changed except your expectations, right? So they've played on our expectations, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Because especially... When you're traveling with a busy little bumblebee like Jack, you're like, oh, thank goodness, something to be good, to feel good about, right? 
We arrived early, supposedly. But it can go the other way too, can it? Like we can plan our expectations and if you undersell and you overdeliver, woo, it's a score. But if you oversell and underdeliver, it's a problem. Point in case, my poor husband did not fully appreciate how the how important holidays are in my family, particularly Christmas and even more particularly Christmas morning, okay? Because in my family, Christmas morning, you are together all the time. No one's allowed to leave the room, okay? Everybody, you open your stockings one person at a time. So take your turn. Thank you very much. And then you have breakfast together. And then you play with some of the stocking thingies. And then you open gifts. And it's, it's all together, all day affair, okay? Tommy, our first Christmas, this is apparently, this is where his expectations were. Um, I, we could open the stockings, I guess. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's go eat breakfast, I suppose. Yeah, no, why not? And I think I'm going to go sleep on the couch for three hours and leave my new wife alone with her mother-in-law. Won't that be fun? <laughs> so many tears. Because my expectations were in tatters amidst the wrapping paper on the floor, right? I had some expectations, and they were not met. No. In fact, I think in premarital counseling, Christmas morning expectations should be first on the list of discussion. Because when our expectations are shattered, when we are disappointed, when what we thought was going to happen doesn't, it hurts. And it's heavy, and it makes us sad, and occasionally a little angry. And so how much more shock and disappointment for the disciples to have waited for the Messiah for so long and to have their hopes just dashed like a Christmas morning. They thought they had found the Messiah. Peter had affirmed it. Yes, you're the Messiah. Only to have Jesus strip away all what they understood that word to mean. And it's clear that while they could see, their vision was still blurry. See, Jesus is dismantling their expectations with brutal efficiency, declaring himself to be the Messiah, but not the political warrior who will rescue Israel. He is the suffering servant who will rescue creation. This new framework, this new paradigm for the Messiah is not computing in their brains. It's like they need new boxes or new pathways or something to understand what Jesus is saying because they are still mostly blind. There's all kinds of research being done in the area of blindness, and much progress is actually being made. Uh, Generations ago, it was generally assumed that if you couldn't see, it was an eye problem, right? If you could get new eyes, you could see if they could have done that, but they couldn't, right? But doctors and scientists are coming to understand that it's not just the eyes that need healing, it's the brain. Like if a person has been blind their whole life, lives and then all of a sudden they get new eyes like a transplant or something that doesn't necessarily mean they can see right away or that they will ever see the same way that we do because their brain doesn't have the categories for the information that it's taking in you see what i'm saying and so the best chance for healing blindness is to do it as early as possible in a person when their brain is still plastic when they can still form new categories and frameworks to understand and perceive the world because after that window closes, it's a little bit more difficult, right? It's kind of like it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. It's hard to teach an old brain how to see. And so to the disciples, they needed healed vision to see what Jesus was doing exactly, but they also needed a, a healed mind, a transformed heart, 
because this is something new altogether, a brand new category of Messiah. What Jesus is declaring is radical. He's declaring, God is with you. God is for you. And not just for Israel, but for all of creation. Not just for some nationalistic victory, but for the ultimate victory over sin and death and over the principalities and the powers and over darkness and the enemy once and for all. You see, what they had in their minds was way too small. That's a lot to take in. A crucified Messiah? A suffering, dying Messiah? And even as they are still taking in the information, they are still computing what Jesus is saying, this image of a suffering Messiah. Jesus keeps talking. Verse 34, he said, He called the crowds with his disciples, and he said to them, If any wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And I imagine the disciples saying, so let me get this straight. You're the Messiah. Yes, but you're a suffering Messiah who will die and rise again. I don't know what that means, but I'm trying to track with you. Yes. Okay, got it. So you say, if I want to follow you, this new suffering Messiah, uh, I need to take up a cross and follow you too? Yes. Oh, awesome. That sounds great. Where do I sign? Take up your cross? But, you know, honestly, the whole taking up your cross thing, that phrase is something that has become so familiar to most of us that it's almost entirely lost its meaning. Because even people outside the church that don't know the story of Jesus, they know what that phrase means. Oh, well, it's my cross to bear, they might say. And taking up and bearing one's cross has almost become equivalent to enduring hard things. Like, I have a pain condition, and it's really hard, and it's my cross to bear. Or, I have this really awful boss at work who is just irks me to no end. I guess it's my cross to bear. But let's be clear. That ain't your cross. A thorn, maybe, but not your cross. See, Paul talks about in Scripture a particular struggle in his life, what they actually think might have been a vision problem, interestingly enough. And he talks about how he asked God over and over, remove this thorn from my flesh, this, this challenge, this, this hindrance. And over and over again, God said, no, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so the hard stuff in our life, like, like a bad boss or sickness or um, challenges that we face, those are thorns for sure. They are hard. Sometimes God relieves them. Sometimes he doesn't, and instead he chooses to use them for our sanctification, right? Those are thorns, challenges. But taking up your cross is an entirely different thing. For Jesus to take up his cross was to embrace public shame. It was to embrace perceived failure in the eyes of both the Jews and the Romans. It was to resist the power that was at work in the world, and not just to resist their vision of the world, but to also resist their way of imposing that vision on the world, which was through violence and coercion. And so to take up his cross meant, and this is really important, 
Jesus was aligning himself not only with the will of God, but with the way of God. God's will, but done in God's way, namely through self-sacrifice for the redemption of creation, not through power and violence. You see, the cross is God's verdict on violence and the power games of broken, sinful humanity. The cross is God's no to vindictiveness and cycles of revenge. And it is to this cross that we are called, this cross that we are called to take up. But like the disciples, our vision is sometimes blurry. We mistakenly look at the life of Jesus and at the cross and at the empty tomb and we perceive that it is all about me. It's a religious good to consume to secure my eternal destiny. And so our blurry vision, like Israel, has given us this distorted view of salvation that goes no further than my own heart. It's like a pocket-sized Messiah. How convenient. But that is not the kingdom of God declared by word and deed by Jesus. That is not the gospel taught and embodied by Christ. The gospel is God come down. The gospel is God among us, God for us. The gospel is God emptying God's self on behalf of creation. It is a gospel of a suffering God who endures shame and violence, who endures it to turn it on its head and free us from the chains of darkness. And it is a gospel that beckons us not only to partake of God's blessing, but to also enact that kingdom work. God's will done in God's way. God's will of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation and healing done in God's way by rejecting violence and power and coercion. God's will done in God's way. Well, not too far from here, up in Nampa, there's a small organization called uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. I mean, and the Church of the Nazarene, we have a really strong relationship with that organization. They do a lot of our flight work for us um, overseas. And when I was a little girl, my mom read me a missionary book. <clears throat> she did that a lot at breakfast table. It was called The Yellow Would Be. And a lot of you have heard this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway because you need to hear it. There was these five guys, actually five couples, and they worked in Ecuador amongst various tribes. And they felt the call of God in their life to minister to a specific tribe, the Alcas. Now, that was kind of a big deal because they had a bit of a reputation for killing people. Always. No one had ever encountered this people and lived to tell the tale. But that did not stop them, right? You're familiar with the story. Do you remember? Things went so mm, horribly wrong. They, saw, they flew the plane over the jungle looking for the tribe, and they finally found them. And when they did, they, they worked out this way of flying the plane, like in this tight circle, so a bucket would drop down to the bottom. And they started exchanging gifts with this tribe. And they thought, okay, we have a relationship. We're making progress. And so they came, and they brought their plane, and they landed it on a sandy bank of a river. And they were going to meet the people for the very first time. And as they were unloading their gear and cameras and different gifts and stuff, they pulled out a gun, some weapons. And they had already decided before they even left the plane, we will not act in violence towards these people. 
If we need to, we'll shoot a shot into the sky to scare off danger, but we will not act in violence. We would rather give our lives before taking theirs in order that they might know Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. They were attacked. They tried to scare them with a shot. It didn't work. And all five lost their lives. And most of you, many of you probably know that story of that ultimate sacrifice, but not everybody knows what happened after. You see, Elizabeth, one of the wives, she had felt the call to the Alcas as well. And when her husband died, the call didn't dissipate. It strengthened. And she said, I, I got to go. And so she packed her bags. She strapped her three-year-old daughter to her back, linked hands with this girl in the picture who is from the Alka tribe. And she walked into the jungle and lived among the people who had murdered her family. And she gave her life learning their language and, and ministering to them. And the outcome was very, very different. Instead of experiencing violence and death, they experienced the transformative love of Christ. And generations later, that people uh, are now followers of Jesus. They are no longer ruled by unending cycles of violence and destruction. Through the cross-bearing obedience of those men, and through the cross-bearing obedience of Elizabeth and of Rachel Saint and all these others, the kingdom of God burst forth in this tribe and transformed a people. It was God's will done in God's way. God's redemptive, forgiving, restoring work brought to life by the self-emptying, self-sacrificing, cross-bearing, faithful obedience of Jesus the disciples in our story, they didn't get it. Their vision was still so blurry. They didn't have eyes to see what God was doing in Jesus, breaking the chains of violence and sin and death by taking it into his person. But the hike wasn't over yet. There was more to come on their journey on the way with Jesus. And so too for us, our vision is often so blurry as well. We don't always have eyes to see very clearly what God did in Jesus and what God is doing still in creation through the Spirit. Our vision is skewed by our sin, by our prejudice, by our own nationalism, by our own self-centered agendas. Me too. But we too are still on the way. We are still on the way. And it's okay that we haven't arrived yet. Jesus doesn't look at us in our blurry vision with disgust and be like, uh, get it together. He looks at us with love and he extends his hand for healing. So let's stay on the path together with Christ. Jesus invites us to be healed, to not wander around in our darkness but to be healed and to join him in giving our lives away for the sake of the kingdom by taking up our cross. He invites us to join him to do God's will done in God's way for the sake of the world. So today we have the privilege of receiving communion, the Lord's Supper. And when we remember the sacrifice of our suffering Messiah, the rescuer who flipped this violent world on its head, by taking it into its very self and transforming and redeeming it, we are free to respond to God. And we are reminded that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after dinner, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And as often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us receive. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the suffering servant, your Messiah, the one that was sent not just to set a people free, but to redeem all of creation. You were different than what we expected, and oh, we are so grateful. And Lord, we recognize the call that you have placed on our lives, not just to receive your blessing, but to walk in your footsteps, to take up our cross in setting aside our own agenda and our own plans and our own stuff and fix our eyes on you. But Lord, we we acknowledge that sometimes our vision is blurry from our own sin and our own prejudice and our own agenda. And so, Lord, we ask with hands outstretched that you would heal us. We know that is your heart's desire, that we might see you clearly and love you deeply. And so would you do that healing, vision-restoring work in us, transforming our hearts and minds in the process. Thank you that you do not leave us as we are, but you call us forward into new life. And so for each one of us, exactly where we are in our work or our home or our school, Lord, would you help us to live in faithful obedience in response to your devotion to us. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to receive the benediction? Would you extend your hands? Beloved Christ Church, may you trust the Lord's deep love for you, and may you seek to follow him, doing God's will in God's way. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed.